You're listening to episode number 17 of the Keto Diet Podcast. Hey, I'm Leanne from healthfulpursuit.com, and this is the Keto Diet Podcast, where we're busting through the restrictive mentality of a traditional ketogenic diet to uncover the life you crave. What's keto? Keto is a low-carb, high-fat diet where we're switching from a sugar-burning state to becoming fat-burning machines. If you're in need of keto recipe food prep inspiration, I've prepped a free seven-day keto meal plan exclusive for podcast listeners. The plan is complete with a shopping list and everything you need to chow down on keto for seven whole days. Download your free copy at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash keto meal. Let's get this party started. Hey guys, I am thrilled to be home. Well, no, rather, I'm thrilled to be working again, but we got back from our almost month vacation back to the wintry winterness that is our home. And I could really do without the cold. I really enjoyed the Caribbean. It was such a nice break and really helped me focus on what was important in my life and redirect a lot of my energy. So I'm back and clearer than ever in all the things that I need to do and the things I don't have to do anymore. It's it's nothing like a vacation to really help you focus in on what's important to you and to get rid of the stuff, you know, that you just don't care too much about but you've been doing for a while. So the awesome thing this week ties into what I ate a lot of on the cruise that we were on and that was gravy. Seriously, I had gravy for lunch and dinner every day for 3 weeks. And they made it with the most amazing beef and chicken broth. They made everything from scratch. It was so good because I'm allergic to all of the things. They had to put a lot of care and attention into my meals. And I got some of the best foods ever. And my favorite was gravy. (laughs) And when we came home a couple days ago, the first thing I did was make a huge batch of bone broth and then convert that into gravy using drippings that I had had in my freezer for forever. So if you're like me and you love gravy, what are you waiting for? Just make a huge batch. And what I did is just froze them in little silicone trays. And then once they were in blocks, I put them in baggies so I can have gravy with every meal. And it's super fatty and delicious and adds so much flavor. So I'm going to be, you know, sitting here from January till at least April eating all of the gravy on all of my foods. What we're covering in this episode today is a history of how the low fat diet became came to be, why saturated fat isn't scary, the ins and outs of cholesterol, and how to interpret medical studies. The show notes for today's episode can be found at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E17. And let's hear from one of our awesome partners. Giveaway alert, the podcast is partnered with Thrive Market, an online market that offers up to 50% off your favorite premium organic products. Think whole food products at Costco prices online, and they put together a sweet offer for our US-based podcast listeners. If you're a nut butter lover, you're in luck because if you sign up for a free 30-day trial to Thrive Market today, you get a free jar of Thrive Market almond butter. This is a $21 value, and all you need to do is cover the $1.95 shipping. 
Go to thrivemarket.com forward slash HP to sign up for your free 30-day trial and get a free jar of Thrive Market almond butter. This creamy spread is non-GMO and ready to take your keto milkshake, rock a fuel latte, or fat bomb to the next level. And it's made with only one, yes one, wholesome ingredient, just almonds, no added oils or sugars in sight. Again, that's thrivemarket.com forward slash HP to sign up for your free 30-day trial with Thrive Market and get your free jar of almond butter. Only pay $1.95 shipping. Okay, I have one thing to share with you and it involves a little bit more traveling. I'm headed to Expo West on March the 8th ish when I think that's when it is. Yeah, March the 8th. And I wanted to see if any y'all going to be there. I'm going to be meeting with a lot of our partners and sponsors of the show and the blog and the book and everything. So if you're there and you see me, please feel free to come up, say hi, would love to chat with you. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode or you want to submit praise over and above the review, which you can leave by going to healthfulpursuit.com forward slash review, you can reach me at info at ketodietpodcast.com. So we got a lot of great questions for today's guest. The questions and suggestions on guests were submitted by the members of our private Facebook group, which is accessible to everyone who purchases one of my keto products, which are available at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash shop, if you're wondering. So our guest today is Nina Tigals. She's an investigative journalist and the author of the international and New York Times bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise. The Economist named it number one science book of 24. 2014, and it was also named a 2014 best book by the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Mother Jones, and Library Journal. The Big Fat Surprise has upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat and challenged the very core of our nutrition policy. A review of the book in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition said, this book should be read by every nutritional science professional. Before taking a deep dive, into researching nutritional science for nearly a decade, Tigles was a reporter for National Public Radio and also contributed to many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, The New Yorker, and The Economist. She attended Yale and Stanford, where she studied biology and majored in American studies. She has a master's degree from Oxford University and served as associate director of the Center for Globalization and Sustainable Development at Columbia University. She lives in New York City. I was so glad that Nina agreed to be on the show. What I love about Nina's book is that she goes through many of the studies that we hear about in the keto space, making them consumable and easy to understand. This book is organized in a way that makes grasping basic concepts such as why low fat isn't the best option for most people to more advanced concepts, making this very accessible regardless of your ability to read scientific studies. She does a really beautiful job at explaining the history of low-fat diets and fat demonization. It's a well-written story. It's amazing. If you're vegan, if you're concerned about the saturated fat intake on the keto diet, if you're using vegetable oils on your keto diet, you need to listen to today's episode. We chat all about saturated fats and their benefits. If you're dairy-free like me, saturated fat intake can come from things like coconut oil, red meat, beef tallow, palm oil, and more. So without Without further ado, let's cut over to our chat. Hey, Nina, how are you doing today? 
Hi, good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. For listeners that may not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a science and investigative journalist, and my background is not in nutrition, but more than a decade ago, I was assigned to do a story on trans fats by Gourmet Magazine, and that was that sort of blew the the whole story open on trans fats and I got a book contract to write about trans fats and then spent a, nearly a decade diving into the research that became my book, The Big Fat Surprise. You know, I just read every single nutrition paper I could get my hands on and talked to hundreds of nutrition experts all over the world and realized there was just this huge untold story about how we had gotten it wrong. Our nutrition experts had gotten it wrong on fat and cholesterol. It's just an incredible story. <laughs> and so that's why it took so long to research, you know, and, and you really, it's because it's so unbelievable, you keep thinking this can't possibly be true. Mm-hmm. So you have to double and triple and quadruple check your work. So that was a very long process. But, you know, it's been very interesting. My book was you know, has gotten a lot of attention. And, and I think it's because it tells this story that really needs to be told and heard. Yes. And you did such a beautiful job at putting together the story. I've read your book twice. And each time I'm like, how did she even organize all this? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's epic. (laughs) Yeah, It was a lot of work. Yeah, But you know, I wanted it to be also, you know, accessible to just the common reader, which is, you know, yes, there are 1000s of studies that are kind of condensed in in the text, but I wanted it to be readable for the average reader and not, you know, to make it a story of people and personalities, which, which it's been, you know, it is. So, so my favorite description of it is by The Economist, which named it their number one science book for 2014. But in their review, they said it's a nutrition thriller, which I was like, wow, yeah, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> You're the first <laughs> one. Good. Yeah, I like it. And I have to ask, like, when before you got assigned that trans fat story what was your do you remember what your take was on your diet or what you were eating do you remember what that was like before you knew what you know now yeah i mean i was for nearly 20 years pretty much a vegetarian i mean in the sense that i didn't eat any red meat i mainly got i had some so a lot of people wouldn't consider this strict vegetarian. I had like some chicken and fish, and but I didn't eat. I tried to avoid eggs. I was your basic like fat avoider. You know, I would avoid any kind of no butter, no cream cheese, no spreads, no sauces, no you know like no salad dressing. I mean, I, that was me for most of my adult life, really since my late teens. And then over the course of doing this research, I mean, I never could have imagined then that I would write a book and put a picture of a red meat <laughs> roast on the cover, like which seems outrageous to me even now. Yeah. But you know, I came to believe that we really had the wrong idea about those foods. We had really gotten it wrong. The science was never strong and had been kind of enshrined as policy before it was ever really proven or conducted and, and you know, that we've just gotten it wrong about those foods. So my ha- my eating habits slowly changed over time. Um, it wasn't like an overnight aha moment. (laughs) But it just it slowly gradually changed to the point where now, you know, I eat a lot of fat and I I, it it doesn't occur to me to worry about it. So that's that's been a huge transformation. Awesome. And what were the highlights of your research? Like what are some of the things that stand out in your head as being like 
everyone needs to know these three things? Well, the main focus of my book is that is the subject of saturated fat. That's the kind of fat in animal foods. It's, you know, all foods are a combination of fats, right? So they're like half of a your average porterhouse steak is half of that. Steak is saturated fat, but half of it is the same kind of fat that you have in olive oil, which is unsaturated. So, But saturated fat is generally in animal foods, um, also in coconut oil and palm oil. And my book focuses centrally on the idea that those fats, which since the 1950s had been targeted as being bad for health, for causing heart disease, that they had been, they'd been unfairly maligned, and the science had never been there to show it's true. And so it focuses on saturated fats and to some extent cholesterol, but really the main focus is saturated fat. But then it, because of that, it has a number of other points and chapters that I think are kind of also super interesting. Like there's a lot on vegetable oils in my book because, you know, if you take out saturated fats, you put in unsaturated fats where polyunsaturated vegetable oils like, you know, corn, safflower, sunflower, soybean. And how those oils became like king of the American kitchen. So, you know, margarine and and Wesson oil in your salad dressing and how they really, Crisco replaced lard, all of those, the influx of vegetable oils and how that was an incredible marketing campaign and where they came from and, and how they're really, in the end, I discovered really worrisome for, had a lot of negative health problems that they caused. So... But that whole that that was really an untold story about the huge influx of vegetable oils. And then I also have a chapter on the Mediterranean diet, which is really kind of just a fun chapter, but it shows how like just the incredible way that the food industry manipulates us when it comes to what we think about food, because it's all about how the European olive oil industry basically constructed this series of fantastic conferences all over the sun-kissed Mediterranean from Greece to Tunisia to southern France and invited all the most influential nutrition scientists and most influential food writers. And out of that came the Mediterranean diet, which is really a marketing construct supported by a very tiny amount of very uncertain evidence. And so it just tells that story about, you know, how food experts got sort of caught up in the wave, their, their love affair with the Mediterranean diet, and how out of that came this like doctor-prescribed Mediterranean diet. So those are some of the highlights. Yeah, brilliant. And there to speak a little bit more about low-fat and kind of how that came about, can you chat a little bit about the history of how we went from kind of being okay with fat and not really thinking about it to completely demonizing fat completely, like what that process was? Yes. It really began with saturated fat and cholesterol, and it started in the 1950s when the whole nation was in a panic over the rising tide of heart disease, which had come from pretty much out of nowhere in the early 1920s to be the nation's number one leading cause of death, including President Eisenhower himself in 1955 and out of the Oval Office for 10 days had a heart attack. So the nation's attention is just absolutely riveted on this subject of what causes heart disease. No one really knew. And into that vacuum stepped a researcher by the name of Ansel Keys. Probably some of your listeners have heard of him, a Mm -hmm. pathologist at the University of Minnesota. It was his idea that saturated fat and cholesterol raised the cholesterol in your arteries, in your blood, and clogs your arteries and causes a heart attack. 
That was his idea. It was called the Diet Heart Hypothesis. And he was a very outsized and charismatic, persuasive individual. He was able to get his idea implanted into the American Heart Association so that in 1961, the American Heart Association issues the very first dietary advice to telling Americans or any people anywhere in the world to avoid saturated fat and cholesterol to try to to, uh, prevent a heart attack. That's the beginning of it all. That's like the tiny acorn that grew into the giant oak tree of advice Mm -hmm. that we now have today all over the world. And, you know, I examined, well, what was the evidence for that? At the time, it was minuscule. It was, it all amounted to a weak kind of science called epidemiology, which can show association, but not causation. I spend a lot of time looking at that original study that Ansel Keys did that supposedly underpinned those American Heart Association guidelines, but really did not, and how he cherry-picked the science. And, And then there was a series of huge, large clinical trials that governments all over the world did that's a more rigorous kind of science to try to show cause and effect on tens of thousands of people trying to prove Ansel Keys' hypothesis right, and they could never prove it. They just simply couldn't. And so then that science was ignored. I mean, literally just ignored and you know, you might say suppressed. Recently, one of these, last year, one of the studies that had been ignored for so long um, was unearthed and republished in the British Medical Journal, and everybody said, oh, what's this? <laughs> but in fact, you know, and, and, and they unearthed some new data that showed not only did restricting saturated fat not improve your protection against heart disease, it seemed that those people who had most successfully restricted saturated fat and cholesterol ended up having a higher risk of death from heart disease. So, in fact, the opposite of what they you would have hoped. So, and there, that's not the only study. There's, there's six or seven other large multi-center, multi-year government-funded clinical trials that all had the same, basically the same results. So, But that was saturated fat. It wasn't until 1970 that we started being fearful of all fats. And that was, again, the American Heart Association brought that idea to us. And that that idea was based on this this notion that, well, because fat has nine calories per gram compared to protein and carbohydrate, which are the other two macronutrients, there are only three macronutrients, um, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. So fat had nine calories per gram protein and carbohydrate have four or five calories per gram. And so there was just this sort of logical intuition that if you limited fat, you'd be limiting calories. And wouldn't that be a good thing? And that Mm -hmm. would help prevent obesity. Well, that was just a complete wild guess. It turns out that it's not all about calories. You know, fat and protein are naturally satiating. And so you can eat fewer of those calories and, and, and feel more full, and, and all calories are not alike anyway. Calories from fat are different. Your body responds to calories in different ways. But anyway, with the American Heart Association and that idea in 1970 that really launched the whole low-fat diet generally, just restrict all fats because you restrict calories. And that was, and then the U.S. government got on board in 1980, our very first dietary guidelines for Americans, and they adopted low-fat low saturated fat, low cholesterol. And so the whole thing became completely enshrined as policy taught by health professionals, educators, dietitians, everybody, you know, adopt that became on board. And that's what I grew up with. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the women, your listeners grew up with that. Yeah, I sure did. (laughs) You know, you count every single calorie, you, you don't put a, you know, you, you dread butter, you, you know, (laughs) use 
Eat only the low, low fat cookies, the diet cookies, but you can't, you can't just have one. <laughs> like, yeah. You're so starving for fat and protein. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens is because you're starving for fat and protein, you end up like, but you feel like, oh, I can't eat those foods. Then you go overeat on, you know, whatever, whatever, what did I overeat when I, you know, rice cakes, those horrible mm. dry cardboard things that like you can never eat enough of those and feel full Yeah. or <laughs> I don't know, you know. But if I'd only known, gee, I could just, if I just had an egg salad sandwich, that would fill me up and then I wouldn't be hungry. So all of that science is starting to really unravel now. Um, The first unraveling came a kind of backing off this restriction on total fat. So this, the low fat diet basically. And, and just to give a sense of the numbers, like in 1965, Americans were eating about 45% of their calories as fat. The low-fat diet advised anywhere between about 33% down to 25% of calories as fat. So it was a pretty big reduction, and Americans did successfully reduce their fat consumption from 1965 to today by about 25%. So we did a pretty good job of, of taking the fat out of our diets. Now, because they did finally do clinical trials, And they found out, they did huge clinical trials, again, the more rigorous kind of evidence, and they showed that actually the low-fat diet does not help protect against any kind of disease. It doesn't help you lose weight. It actually seems to worsen some of your heart disease risk factors, meaning it might increase the risk of heart disease. It doesn't help protect against diabetes. doesn't help protect against any kind of cancer. So finally, and these, again, big, large, rigorous, multi-center, government-funded clinical trials, at the end of all that, Just last year, the American Heart Association and the U.S. government both have backed off. You may not know this because they haven't really done it in a public way, but they've Mm -hmm. eliminated any language from their guidelines saying that you should restrict total fat, which is to say, like, the low-fat diet is over. It's over. It's just that they've tiptoed away from that, and they haven't told the American public because it really, it's unjustifiable. Like, the study... Studies really show that people on that diet, their good cholesterol, it's called their HDL cholesterol, drops. That's a bad, worrying sign mm-hmm. that your heart disease risk is going up. You're, in a number of those studies, people's triglycerides went up, another worrying sign that your heart disease risk is going up. So it really, it's unjustifiable to recommend a low-fat diet anymore. But, you know, for whatever reason, they just haven't told the American people yet. More on my interview with Nina Tigles after this message from one of our podcast partners. The podcast is partnered with Vital Proteins, the leader in sustainably sourced collagen for a full, vibrant life. As you know, podcast listeners receive 10% off plus free shipping in the U.S. on all of their favorites over at vitalproteins.com with the coupon code VPHP10. That's all in caps, no spaces. Beginning February 1st, 2017, Vital Proteins and I will be putting together something super special that will replace the coupon code. Stay tuned into the podcast for more information leading up to February 1st. In the meantime, the coupon code VPHP10 will continue to work up to January 31st, 2017. What other hurdles do you think there are? Like the low fat, definitely them removing it from the guides. That's, I mean, a step in the right direction. But do you see other hurdles that kind of have to be addressed on more of a public scale in order for the people to change? 
Yeah, well, I think there should be a big public relations campaign about around the fact that the low-fat diet is over because mm. I think like other than me and you and your listeners and a few other people, yeah. most people really don't know that. Most doctors are still advising a low-fat diet. And the other hurdle, the big hurdle, is that there's still a limit on saturated fats, which is exists because the experts who are in charge of kind of that the review of saturated fats for our last dietary guidelines really ignored a lot of the evidence. So just to explain for your listeners, all those clinical trials that I discussed that were, that were ignored and suppressed and researchers in the last just five years have kind of dug up those trials. There's been a kind of renaissance of understanding about saturated fats and people have gone and dug up those trials and looked at the results and done systematic reviews of them and meta-analyses of them and all these things, this, you know, groups all over the world have done this. And the universal conclusion is that saturated fat is not associated with heart disease and that it has no effect on cardiovascular mortality. That means restricting saturated fat will not save you from, from, a, from cardiovascular, having a death from heart attack. There's really no point to it. But the experts in charge of our dietary guidelines did not review that science in a way that was thorough or systematic, which I wrote about in an article that I um, that was published by the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, and I got in a lot of hot water for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, the science has shifted. There's been an understanding that actually we got it wrong on saturated fats, and yet we still have these official guidelines that limit them. So why is that a problem? Well, one, it's just wrong. The science is wrong. Two, it's the limit on saturated fats that, that, that limits our, you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable about eating animal foods. We feel like there's something wrong with that, like eating, you know, red meat, eggs, dairy, full fat dairy. You know, the reason that the government recommends or the American Heart Association recommends lean meat and low fat dairy is that is, is, due to trying to minimize the saturated fat content. So, and those recommendations really aren't warranted. So you want to eat, you know, in practical terms, like you want to eat regular meat, full fat dairy. You do not need to fear the fats in those foods. They're good and healthy. Coconut oil, palm oil, which is used in, in manufactured, the food industry uses it in manufactured goods. Not, those are both tropical oils. Those are fine and healthy fats. And they should not be feared. There's really no evidence for it. And it's, I'm going to give you three reasons why you should eat saturated fats. Okay, one is, is that saturated fats are the only foods known to, uh, to increase your HDL. That's, again, your good cholesterol. So if you go to the doctor and he says, your HDL is kind of low, and you say, well, what can I do? And he'll say, well... You can drink more red wine or you can exercise, but that really only has a little effect on HDL and uh, otherwise I'm out of ideas. Well, the most reliable, consistently reliable way to raise your HDL is to eat more saturated fat. So that's one reason. Second reason is saturated fats are stable. The saturated means that it's saturated with hydrogen, which means that it's like it, it's stable, it's, it's solid at room temperature, butter and lard. I know most people are terrified of that even the word lard, but yeah. you know, those, those are, those are stable, solid fats. And the virtue of that is means they don't oxidize, especially when heated. What is wrong with oxidation? Oxidation is what causes inflammation all over your body. It manifests, manifests itself in all kinds of ways, you know, arthritis. It, it is thought to be one of the things that 
uh, if your inflamed arterial wall is what provokes heart disease. I mean, all kinds of bad stuff is related to inflammation. What causes that is oxidation. Oxidized fat is the principal source of oxidation, and that's mainly what oxidizes are vegetable oils because they're highly unstable. They're, they're liquid. You heat them. They oxidize into hundreds of toxic oxidation products. So I'm talking about like even you know canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil, any of those oils don't cook with them. What you want to be cooking with is a solid fat like ghee or lard or tallow, or beef tallow, tallow, beef tallow. You know you can get these. There are there are little companies now making these or um, or coconut oil is a really good really gives a delicious flavor to things, but they're stable and solid. So they're better, they're better for your body. And oh, the other reason to eat more saturated fats has really not to do with saturated fats themselves, but the foods that contain them are the ones that are super nutrient dense. And you, you know, thinking about diet, although we, we haven't been trained to think this way, but you want to, you really want to think about getting all the essential nutrients you need. I mean, for women, especially like iron and, you know, folate, especially for, you know, having babies, you want to get, that's all from red meat, from liver, from organ meats. I mean, those are the foods that are super nutrient dense and you need those nutrients in order to be healthy. So that's another reason that like getting rid of the cap on saturated fat would probably be the fastest way to make Americans a whole lot healthier. And who are the, like, are there specific studies or people out there like yourself kind of fighting the good fight? And do you have like a couple of friends that, or, you know, colleagues that are kind of on the same path as you that you go to, you know, to raise these concerns of the poor science and kind of highlighting things? Yeah, we are like, we are a a small but growing group of, it's interesting, it really started with, you know, journalists to some extent, people outside the mainstream nutrition world. Uh, you know, if you grow up inside the nutrition world, you really learn the conventional dogma. And that, so it's taken kind of outsiders like myself, me, there's a journalist, Gary Taubes, but there's also now like hundreds of doctors in Canada and in the US and really all over the world who are finding out that a high fat, lower carb diet is just so much better for all the conditions that they treat, that they struggle to treat. You know, that you can do, what you can do with diet is so much more powerful than what you can do with drugs. You know, contrary to every single thing they've learned in medical school, they're taught nothing about nutrition and they're just taught to, you know, prescribe drugs. And that here's this diet that seems to do better than any drug. So, and now, and they're also quietly a large number of academic researchers and scientists whom, you know, who who sometimes will stick their nose out, but, you know, are kind of quietly working behind the scenes to shift the debate, getting articles published, trying to get research going. I mean, it's a fearful group. And why is it so scary? Well, you know, as I document in my book, it's truly incredible how like the really it's you have to just call it the kind of bullying tactics that go on against people who speak up against the status quo they are truly 
bullied. They're, they lose their, I have stories of people losing their funding grants, people can't get their papers published, getting disinvited from conferences. And then I myself experienced all these things. I was disinvited from a co- food policy conference because I was too controversial. And then I wrote this paper from the B, for the BMJ and then 180 scientists signed a letter asking for it to be retracted. Oh my gosh. Like how, how terrifying is that, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the BMJ stood up very strongly for the piece, and I'm totally relieved. But that not only tries to, you know, to get rid of me, but it tries to, it sends a warning sign out to any researcher who's thinking of doing anything similarly controversial, right? It's trying to silence and shut down debate. And it's very scary for researchers or really for anyone who's a critic. So... That's why you you will see, I think, kind of the effort for change happening from, from well, like, <laughs> I don't know, very hard-headed people, but also from people who are, you know, a little bit outside the establishment. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a career scientist, you, you just cannot afford to have 180 of your colleagues <laughs> asking for retraction of your paper. Totally. Yeah, I think, you know, like in the blogging space, I used to be vegan <laughs> and I was a vegan blogger and I have many recipes still on my site that are like oil free. This is like the best thing. I'm using water for cooking instead of oil. And when I made the switch, I lost a ton of readers. But for me, it was just like there's more people out there. So as a holistic nutritionist and blogger, it actually helped grow my business and find the people that were interested in it. But I can see if it's your livelihood and you're relying on you know, funding, and all of a sudden that funding is taken away. It's not like you can just, you know, easily find something else. So I can imagine that being pretty mortifying. And for those listening who, you know, are teachers and lawyers and, you know, stay at home moms, what can an individual do to help spread this message? Well, I think that the most important thing is to, you know, that, that image of like, you've got to put on your own oxygen mask first, which is you mm-hmm. take care of your own health and your own body. And then you need to take care of your family and your loved ones and the people around you. And, and those think it's, it's hard to make these changes. It's hard to convince the people you love around you to make changes. You know, mm-hmm. my mom and dad, like I it took me like maybe Mm, five years to get my mom to stop eating low fat yogurt. <laughs> wow. Mad props. That is hard. My mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I think you can move out into your communities. You can try to educate people at your school. I mean, what's very hard is that no institution wants to go up against medical advice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a friend of mine went and tried to kind of educate her school about the problems of sugar and this and that. And, and they really, they just said, well, you know, this is what the doctor says, and we're going by what the doctor says, which really leads, I mean, I think that the model for change, ultimately is going to have to be that we're going to have to change dietary guidelines, because that's sort of like the, it's like the Bible from which all, all knowledge flows. I mean, every professional in society, every doctor, every dietitian, every nutritionist, they are sworn pretty much to follow those dietary guidelines. So mm. in the end, I think we have to change the guidelines. And, you know, if, if people want to help do that, then they can go to a website called the Nutrition Coalition and just sign up to, to join in because that's a group that's going to, that's trying to do that work. And I've been involved in, in that group. And I think, you know, I think because until that changes, as long as you have all the experts saying this is the way to eat 
and it's that the advice is wrong, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be very hard to have a kind of bottom up movement going against that expert advice. I mean, I think that's just kind of the reality. More on my interview with Nina Teigels after this message from one of our podcast partners. The show is partnered up with Paleo Valley, the makers of the only 100% grass-fed and finished fermented beef stick. Each stick contains 1 billion probiotic CFUs. We all know how important fermented foods are to the health of our gut and the strength of our immune system, especially during cold and flu season, as well as boosting our energy throughout the winter months. Chowing down on Paleo Valley's fermented beef sticks provides your body with all of the beneficial bacteria it loves in one convenient little beef stick. Their gut-friendly sticks are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, GMO-free, freaky chemical additive dye and preservative-free, as well as being 100% free from carbs and sugar, and made with the highest quality ingredients. Exclusive to listeners of the show, receive instant savings of 20% off Paleo Valley fermented beef stick snacks by going to paleovalley.com forward slash keto. And if your jaw is just tired thinking about beef jerky, it's worth noting that these tasty treats are not tough at all, but moist with a little snap. The summer sausage flavor even tastes like those hickory summer sausages, but without the gunk. Seriously delicious. Again, that's paleovalley.com forward slash keto for an instant 20% off savings. And where does cholesterol play in all of this? Because we're told that, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, like you avoided eggs. Maybe some of that was to do with because eggs have cholesterol and therefore your cholesterol would be crazy and you would die of heart disease. Where is cholesterol in this and how does that play into this story really of the low fat movement and how that's changing? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And remember that the original advice by Ansel Keys was to cut back on saturated fat and dietary cholesterol. So dietary cholesterol is what leads to it sorry, is what's in eggs, liver, shellfish. Those are the main foods that we were we cut back on to try to eat less cholesterol. And the idea was that if the more cholesterol you eat, the higher your blood cholesterol would be. Like there was this direct Mm one-to-one correlation. We actually have known since the early 80s that that's not true. If you, your body produces cholesterol because cholesterol is used in every cell of your body. It's essential for the, for the functioning of all your cells, including like your sex hormones are made of cholesterol. Your brain uses cholesterol. Every, your body needs cholesterol. So if you eat more of it, your body just produces less of it. I mean, there's just like this, it, it seeks to maintain homeostasis in your body. Mm-hmm. So you can eat a lot of cholesterol. There's a great experiment by a doctor who ate like, I don't know, 21 eggs a day. <laughs> and his blood <laughs> cholesterol was stable. And But there, you know, there were bigger, more rigorous experiments than that. But it just shows you that idea. So but then there's also this question of all the, the cholesterol in your blood. We measure total cholesterol. Then there's like your load, your LDL and your HDL and all these things that we measure. And we, and we worry about those because we're told that if those are wrong, too high or too low or whatever, we're, that's a sign that you're going to have a heart attack. And for a long time, we've embraced the low-fat diet because we thought it, it, it lowered, and to some extent, the saturated, lowering the limits on saturated fat because they lower your total cholesterol. And then when that was found not to be a very reliable predictor of heart attack, then we switched to LDL, low density lipoprotein cholesterol. So, you know, 
if your LDL cholesterol was going down, which you could do by restricting fat and saturated fat, then that was seen as a good thing. But over time, there were a bunch of experiments that showed that you were just as likely to have a heart attack if your, your LDL was high as, as if it was low. So LDL turned out to be unreliable. Mm-hmm. So this whole diet that had been pinned to LDL, you know, that turned out that LDL wasn't, wasn't a good predictor of a heart attack. So all that science about predictors of heart attacks and what you measure in your blood and all of that has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. And now we understand probably the most reliable and commonly measured predictor of a heart attack is your HDL and your triglycerides. Your HDL over your triglycerides is, is probably the most reliable predictor that you know your average doctor can measure and look up. Those look better if you eat a higher fat diet, including saturated fat. So that means you're, the most reliable cholesterol markers look the best on a higher fat, higher saturated fat diet. Low in carbohydrates, I have to add. The things that really bring down um, triglycerides and help HDL go up as well is reducing your carbohydrates. So we're talking about a high-fat, low-carb diet is what produces the best results. And then there are other kind of up-to-date markers that are kind of on the cutting edge, like your LDL particle number and your LDL density. And you want to have light, buoyant LDL and not small, dense LDL. And those markers also look better on a high-fat, low-carb diet. So there's really no indication of any adverse marker on a high-fat, low-carb diet, even when that diet includes saturated fats. That's really cool. And like a lot of people that hear the low-carb message end up doing low-carb, low-fat. Have you looked at any of that and the impact? Or Because, I mean, in my personal opinion, it, the, it, fat is where it's at. <laughs> and yeah. by increasing fat, you got to get rid of something and carbohydrates are the answer to that. But a lot of people do the low-carb, low-fat thing. And what are your thoughts on that? Have you read any papers on it or anything? Not so much. I don't feel like I know that much. I mean, that would have to be a high protein diet. Yeah. And I don't know. I've, you know, I've read mixed papers on a high protein diet. Mm. So I really, I really don't know. I think, you know, historically, I'm not sure how many populations have really been on that diet. Because if you eat animal foods, animal foods are naturally high in fat. So you have to kind mm-hmm. of it's it's not a I don't know how natural a diet that is, but honestly I don't feel like I can I can accurately say anything too intelligent about that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, totally. And one question I did have is when I was doing some research, and you mentioned it just briefly, is about vegetable oil. And one thing I got a little bit caught up on was canola oil because if it's an unprocessed oil, the omega ratio is pretty good. Uh, the PUFA is high, but would you say that it, it's good for salads? Like if it's unprocessed, organic, non-genetically modified, would you say that you would wrap canola oil up in a like a pretty safe bucket when it comes to fats? You know, canola oil is made out of, it's, it's, it's a highly processed product. It's not, it, even if it's organic or GMO, it's still like a highly processed and it's still a, a polyunsaturated fat. So the poly refers to multiple double bonds. Any double bond is basically available to bond with oxygen. Mm -hmm. So those are all opportunities to become oxidized. And so I really, 
I don't think that canola oil is is so much better than any other vegetable oil. If I were doing a salad dressing, I would go with olive oil, and that's because it's a monounsaturated fat. It's the only monounsaturated fat, and that means it has only one double bond. Mm -hmm. Each molecule only has one double bond, and that's only one opportunity to bond with oxygen. Okay, so I would imagine that you would bucket like canola and maybe flax and like hemp oil kind of in the same bucket because of the polyunsaturated ratio. Is that fair? Yeah, they're just very high in polyunsaturated fats. Which is unstable. Which are unstable. They're inherently unstable. Mm-hmm. They try to stabilize them in various ways. and But, you know, to, to try to stabilize them and they do further chemical processing, you know, they do things like interesterify the molecules and change. I mean, it's all just, it's so, it's such, those are such artificial processes. You're talking about a product that's been, you know, gone through like 15 stages of processing. It's winterized, deodorized, Mm -hmm. stabilized, maybe interesterified. I mean, it's such a highly processed food. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, olive oil, at least you can get a cold pressed olive oil as, you know, as a relatively unprocessed kind of oil. Yeah, so you would say any of the process, like any oil that's processed, really, (laughs) you know, go for the cold pressed or extra virgin type of thing. So you can make sure that it's lightly touched and as natural as possible. Would that be fair? Yes, I think so. And again, particularly because it's a monounsaturated fat, olive Mm -hmm. oil is just chemically less prone to oxidation. Yeah. And the oxidation we spoke about earlier about causing inflammation and a bunch of other things. And inflammation can mean a lot of different things. Like you say inflammation, you think, oh, you know, my joints hurt, but it goes so much further than that. And what are your thoughts on individuals that are maybe looking to read scientific studies or papers to gather their own thoughts? Do you have suggestions on how one would consume information in studies and what to look for in a good study? That's such a good question and such a hard one to answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing I would say is that what has led to a lot of bad understanding are the kinds of studies that are called observational or epidemiological studies. Those are studies that show association but not causation. Like this Mm -hmm. is associated with that, you know, this may cause that. And those kinds of studies are just notoriously unreliable. They have big numbers of people in them and they follow those people over long periods of time. But those that they rely on these, what is called food frequency questionnaires where people have to fill out like how many times, you know, in the last six months have you had peaches or prunes or whatever. It's like yeah. there's such, it's such unreliable data. And so I would stay clear reading those studies as even though they're published frequently, they come out of highly respected universities, I would just stay away from them because historically speaking, they've almost always been wrong. And then, you know, if you're interested in reading studies as they come out, I mean, it's very hard. I mean, one of the really tough things about this field is kind of like learning how to read between the lines. You know, there's so much that happens in nutrition that is political and people, researchers who don't even really report their own results because they're afraid of them or what their colleagues might say. So, you know, but you want to, you know, clinical trials are the best kind of research. They can demonstrate cause and effect. A good, big clinical trial that is on humans and not mice, often you'll see that headlines are about, you know, based on studies on mice. Mm -hmm. Mice are totally different from humans when it comes to diet. So 
you know, if there's a study that came out showing that the paleo diet is not good on mice, mm-hmm. what you've learned from that study is that the paleo diet is not good for mice. Yeah. <laughs> good one. <laughs> but yeah. that doesn't tell you anything about humans. <laughs> So, you know, basically the job if you're trying to learn more is to try to like realize how much bad nutrition science and bad nutrition journalism there is and just trying to like recognize all the bad science out there and being cynical about what you read. I guess, (laughs) unfortunately, that would kind of be my top line message, really to be skeptical about what you read. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, there's... There's so many headlines based on these tiny mice studies or unreliable epidemiological studies. And so occasionally there's a good clinical trial that comes along that says something real and rigorous, and that's worth paying attention to. Brilliant. And my last question is, um, you um, wrote such a beautiful book, and it's fabulous. And I know that a lot of people have been very interested in your work over the years since you wrote the book. What's next for you? What? What are you up to? What are you working on? Well, I'm starting to put pull together a proposal for another book, which should really be a more contemporary look at the kind of the diet wars and mm-hmm. and the, and some of the go into a little more detail about some of the politics involved, you know, like which is, which are truly so much. Even I, in in the amount of work I did, could not really imagine the scope of the corruption that has gone on in this field. So I kind of want I, I would like to write another book about that and really it's very contemporary. Like this is what's going on right now. Mm. And meantime, I'm doing some articles in newspapers and magazines and and I'm I have for the last 6 months been getting going on starting my newsletter. <laughs> yeah. But if you're if you're interested Heavy when feet. that <laughs> finally comes out, you can go and sign up and put your email address down on my website, which is thebigfatsurprise.com. And I also have been working on trying to launch a new website. And and I have to say that one of the things that's taken up a lot of my time is I am interested in this need, tremendous need for the entire population of, to change the dietary guidelines because they are not based on the best and most current science. And if you really want to change the world for all people, that is, that's where it has to happen. And mm-hmm. so my hope is to be able to contribute to that effort. I just think things aren't really going to change for everybody until those change. So that website, again, if anybody's interested in that work is nutrition-coalition.org. So that's it. That and two kids, all I can manage. Yeah, that's enough. I think, yeah, that's enough work for probably three people. So I think you're doing pretty good. I'll include the links in today's show notes for everything that you just mentioned, including the Nutrition Coalition and and such. Um, And everyone can find the show notes for today's episode by going to healthfulpursuit.com forward slash podcast forward slash E17. And thanks so much for being on the show today, Nina. Leanne, it's been great talking to you. So thank you for having me. Thanks. And that does it for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can follow me on Instagram by searching Healthful Pursuit, where you'll find daily keto eats and other fun things. And check out all of my keto supportive programs, bundles, guides, and other cool things over at healthfulpursuit.com forward slash shop. And I'll see you next Sunday. Bye.